Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Over the course of my Real Vision journey, the question I was asked most often was, what is your favorite interview you've conducted over the years? And while everybody who asked me was both disappointed that uh, I didn't have a favorite in particular and very eager to talk about their own, there were a number of conversations that really stuck with me over those five years. And one of them was most definitely the first time I met my guest today. Daniel Want is the Chief Investment Officer of Prerequisite Capital Management in Brisbane, Australia. And when he and I sat down to chat in Sydney in 2015, he was largely unknown. A mutual friend of ours had introduced us a year prior and I devoured Daniel's written work. But once I got the chance to sit with him and listen to him think out loud, I knew that I'd witnessed something very, very special. So I'm delighted to have another chance to talk with him today about his unique investment framework. Once again, the transcript and the charts that Daniel's very kindly allowed me to attach to it will be invaluable this week. So I would urge you to download those because once you're done listening to the conversation that follows, you're not only going to want to study Daniel's charts intently, but you'll no doubt want to find out more about his approach, something you can do if you visit his firm's website, prerequisite.com.au. So with that as precursor, please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Want. Daniel, so good to see you again, mate. It's been way too long. Thanks for taking the time early on a Saturday morning for you to, to do this with me. Yeah, no, it's good to catch up again. Yeah, it's it, it must be it must be probably four, maybe five years since we sat down in Sydney for a chat. Oh yeah, no, sitting down face to back face that that definitely feels like an eternity ago. Yeah, no, exactly right. Well, look, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about today, but before we get into that, and there's there's one specific thing that I really, really want to dig into with you regarding your investment framework. But but before that, there will be people listening to this who, um, by the end of it, are going to be saying, why the hell haven't I heard about this guy before? So for them, just, just give us the quick potted background about how you ended up doing what you're doing now and, and your kind of journey to today, if you can. Yep. So... The short version is uh, something like 20 years ago, got out of school, wanted to understand how the world worked, thought university would help with that, finance, economics, got halfway into it, realized it wasn't that helpful, fired the university, figured I could do a better job teaching myself or at least trying to figure stuff out for myself. I was young and naive enough to actually through <laughs> on that became a hermit for multiple years, you know, with another box of books rocking up on the doorstep every few weeks. Fortunately, Amazon existed. Yeah. You know, the secondhand book markets were actually really helpful, tracking down a lot of historic things that were hard to get a hold of. But anyway, eventually I had to get back into the real world again. Uh, or through that period was sort of threw myself into trading derivatives and all sorts of things anyway, just for fun. And I figured what better way to learn. And then basically Google search, you know, global macro hedge fund. Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> there was one in Brisbane. I thought that I'd be heading to Melbourne or somewhere and called them up. Look, can I talk to the managing director? He doesn't know me from a bar of soap. I'd love to buy him lunch. I want to do what he's doing in 10 years time. 
you know, they felt sorry for me. The, he gave me a call back. He actually grilled me a bit because clearly he, he's a busy, yeah. busy guy. Um, but in the end, he ended up offering, well, we caught up for breakfast a few days later. One hour turned into multiple hours and pretty much offered me a, a start, you know, as an analyst and, and sort of introduced me to some things after that. That kind of more or less got me into the industry, roughly speaking. Fast forward about eight years ago, out of much frustration, some of my colleagues and I basically launched our own firm. Uh, much frustration in terms of what we were seeing going on in the industry yeah. and what was happening with family and friends, especially through the sort of leading up to and through and after the 2008 period where we thought probably a better way to do things. It seemed to be a, an excessively predatory environment uh, in the finance world, especially yeah. for average families trying to find solutions and et cetera. Uh, so we thought, well, we create something, uh, and if it was good enough for our own family and friends, probably other people would like it too. Eight years later, still going and seems to be doing okay. Yeah, and I, you know, it's fascinating. There's, there's so many parts of that that are similar to my own path. You know, I, I didn't go to uni or college or whatever you want to call it either. I, I got straight in, and again, l lucky ex entrance into the business and like you calling the guy up, I was just badgering the guy in the trade room to give me a job ultimately. But, you know, back then you could do that. It wasn't such a off-base thing to do. I'm also thinking about this would make the worst montage in, in your life story if it was a Rocky film, the, the books turning up at the door, the training montage is just you flicking through pages of books. It would, it would be a lousy montage. Yeah, that's right. I mean, lots of funny conversations where everyone would consistently think I was crazy. Um, yeah. You know, you're doing what now? You're quitting what? You know, you, and what are you going to do? And, you know, and trying to figure out how the world worked is no small task. And obviously our pendulum swung from the academic environment. And so I didn't want to read or learn from anyone who hadn't been there, done that, been successful, yeah. you know, either in building a business or investing or anticipating events, et cetera. And that was quite helpful, you know, and so one book would multiply into 10 because you'd go through, you know, oh, why does he think that way? Or if there's an offhanded yeah. comment or, you know, you just start drilling. But what, what gave you the, really the balls to do that? Because it's, it's a big move and also you need a very specific mindset slash work ethic to do it that way effectively. Well, what I don't tell people is, to the end of high school, like a, a lot of primary and high school, you know, I was more interested in, in soccer and other things. I couldn't see the point to a lot of different things we we're doing purely because maybe I, I didn't have anyone to be able to explain and, and connect purpose. Didn't read a lot, you know, when I was younger. And so out of high school and then getting into uni and starting to get uh, motivated, my parents were a little bit blown away going from someone who'd never really read before to having boxes of books right. every couple of weeks. But also with our family backgrounds, we were in a kind of unique situation where my parents were helping a lot of people who had been hurt. Basically the tail end of not fantastic stuff in terms of regulatory pharmaceuticals, uh, right. even chemicals, pesticides, the, the whole works. And so I'd had this, you know, growing up looking at my parents helping people who had uh, kind of been destroyed by the way the world worked and circumstance. Yeah, the sure. Way, yeah, the whole variety of different things. And so I was like, whoa, you know, you've kind of really got to start to sit up and pay attention about how things really work, not just 
surface level, superficial sort of understandings because incentives can be a little bit skew if sometimes, and there can be some conflicts of interest at key junctures that underpin trust in society. Yeah. And so that definitely sort of jarred the paradigm to a degree in that you really do need to think for yourself in this world or, you know, uh, it, it doesn't end well if you don't, unfortunately. And so that sort of laid the foundations. Also, when you burn your bridges, you get pretty motivated and pretty focused. Uh, <laughs> right. And so, you know, every six months it was like, have I actually just ruined my life by quitting all of this and, and you know, doing the hermit, figure out the world routine or, but then you pull yourself out. It's like, actually what I'm learning here is fantastic. Like this is phenomenal. And you're connecting dots in all sorts of unrelated fields and, and you just sort of keep going. I figured because of, the quality of what it felt like I was learning, especially compared to where I came from, you know, yeah. from the university side of things, just figured it had to pay off eventually. And, and like I say, you burn your bridges, you, you, it, it definitely focuses you. Yeah. yeah no, no two ways about that. When you transition from working for someone to starting your own firm, just talk a little bit about that because it, again, it's, it's one thing to sit in a chair and do a job and have a set of responsibilities to focus on. Uh, and you can channel all your kind of mental energy and your focus into your fund, your trading book, your sector, whatever it may be. But obviously the broader distractions of setting up your own firm and you know, in no small way, taking on friends and family money to manage, that elevates that level of responsibility to a much, much higher plane. How did you, how did you cope with that? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't exactly call it fun, um, <laughs> but Darren, who's uh, my business partner, we sort of launched this thing together. He's a class act. So whole world of capability, multi-decades of experience. That definitely helped a lot. Yeah, um, for sure. And then also responsibility is a big thing. It's, it's something that society, I guess, is lacking these days. And when you start taking responsibility for the little things, you know, even that tends to sort of cascade into taking responsibility for bigger things, especially when, you know, at that point I'd spent a lot of years trying to understand how things work, how to navigate things, especially then in a hedge fund and funds management context, when I started into that industry and really it, it just came down to taking a lot of common sense sort of ideas pretty seriously. Um, yeah. That kind of keeps you safe. We also, you know, placed a large premium on resiliency and sort of a, a more conservative focused set of strategies, because that was part of what was missing in our view. There's no shortage of the more aggressive stuff out there, but just having something that is somewhat liquid, resilient, it's not going to shoot the lights out in, in terms of investment returns, but you're going to have peace of mind, irrespective of the circumstances we once run through, whether it's an, another global financial crisis or booms, busts, whatever. If we can just produce consistent inflation plus two to five or six ish percent in a consistent sort of compounding sort of way. And when we do get sort of issues or crises or recessions come through every five to 10 years on average, well, we're intact and, and we can step in or our clients can also step in to pick up high quality assets at bargain basement prices uh, more often than not. And so over time, that resiliency actually then becomes just like in business, a competitive advantage. So if you can sustain the multiple cycles when competitors are being taken out or assets are coming on sale cheap, 
it's a very conservative way to compound wealth and protect wealth as well over multiple cycles without losing sleep, basically. And so we focused on the more conservative, resilient, liquid sort of all weather style strategies, but we do so in a way where we don't use derivatives, don't use leverage, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. This is why I love your mindset about this because it's it's you know it's a very similar to how I think about so many things. And you know, one of the things that blew me away the first time you and I actually met because I've been I've been reading your stuff that you know, a mutual friend of ours had sent to me for a while, and and you know the the writing was just so great and so thoughtful. But you know, I was just blown away the first time you and I met just to sit down and hear you think out loud about this stuff because it's it's a way of thinking that generally speaking you don't get to for the most part, until you're 60 years old and you're jaded and you've spent such a long time in the industry and you've been through multiple cycles and it all gets a bit much. And, and so I think you've figured out something that normally takes people a long time to figure out. And I'm sure a lot of that is because you read all those books about history and because you understood the past and you could kind of, you could go through those cycles mentally in your head. But you know, what it's brought you to is a set of first principles that you've kind of distilled your framework down to a set of first principles that are on paper at least very simple but i think they they highlight not only an old-fashioned way of managing money but also as you say a very resilient way of managing money so after all that kind of preamble i'd love to get into this framework of yours talk a little bit about how you do it and and also how you ended up shaving off the pieces of marble to end up with the sculpture that you've got left that, that is those first principles. So, so perhaps we can kind of get into what the principles are first and then we'll kind of figure out the journey along the way, how you, how you distill them down yeah, to those. There's probably one aspect in, in terms of context that will make this discussion make a, a little bit more sense. So 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, when I was kind of starting to really get interested in uh, how the world worked and all of this sort of thing, one of the things that was abundantly clear, even back then, was the magnitude of basically the coordinated credit cycle that had unfolded and the, the conditions that had sort of uh, defined most of the 1900s, where especially the last 50 years, we've kind of had that tailwind uh, globally with all the major different economies, you know, with this tailwind of one hell of a credit cycle pretty much unprecedented in history in terms yeah. of global scope and magnitude. And, and so when I was looking at that, and of course it doesn't take long reading history to realize that credit related phenomena tends to occur in cycles and waves and there's all sorts of drum. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, we just had multiple decades of just phenomenal credit expansion in all sorts of ways, shapes and forms, especially when you get into the internationalized sort of banking arena as well. I'm going to be coming of age as an investor to have to deal with the tail end of this, right. you know, right. globalized credit cycle. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you learn about valuation methodologies and Buffett and the whole work, you know, it's sort of a, a path along the way of, of learning. But I was starting to realize that, well, are we necessarily going to have those mean reverting tailwinds that we had in the last 60 years? where we got fairly solid rule of law, you know, even globally, relatively speaking, market mechanisms intact, and this tailwind of just a, a credit cycle like you've never seen before in history. That gives a buy the dip mentality, whether you call it yeah. value investing or whatever, at an aggregate macro level, 
quite a tailwind, right? And then the productivity side of things with the technology and all the rest of it. On the tail end or the topping process of a credit cycle, when credit starts to be, get too saturated in an economy, that all sort of falls apart. The tailwinds are not necessarily there. And if policy directions are towards suppressing market mechanisms, disengaging market mechanisms and the like, and the world becomes a little bit more competitive instead of cooperative, et cetera, et cetera. Even rule of law starts to become a little bit more problematic. Evaluation-based framework as your sole beginning and end, it, it, it might not cut it. And so the more I thought about that, it's going to be, well, you really need to understand how money is moving in the world and, and sort yeah. of that whole follow the money sort of and the behavioral dynamics around things. And then also realizing that different participant groups in the world or around any given industry or in any given market, there's different categories of participants, all with different incentives, all with different proximity to information, right? All with different capabilities, different balance sheets, uh, different levels of experience, et cetera, et cetera. But they tend to fall into these fairly standard categories in, in any given yeah. market or industry. And so it was also then learning, you know, figuring out a methodology where you could learn to follow the money more so what was actually happening because on the, at, at the latter stages of a credit cycle, especially a globalized one. And thereafter, there's probably going to be a lot of disorientation and money will move in ways that might be kind of counterintuitive, right? Especially if there's bizarre policy dimensions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Now, it's not like I could articulate all of this like I am now back then, but that was kind of the progression of realization. Well, the other thing too, when I quit university, I wanted I had two questions, you know, I wanted to figure out how the world worked and to be able to manage an unlimited amount of liquidity behind that understanding right. in markets, which is insane. I just still don't even know why I had that in my head, <laughs> but that forced me to really go deep and bigger and broader in terms of understanding things and markets all of a sudden if that's your objective you know just figuring out a, a trading strategy for example where you can sit back and just pick your time where you step in it's just it's just not going to cut it no um, no and so that sort of context meant that i was having to ask questions and figure things out where and i also didn't have the benefit of a huge network of people that I knew or even a Bloomberg terminal back then, sure. et cetera, et cetera. And even now, actually, like there's no ticker for capital flows. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> no, I, I will get onto that for sure. Absolutely. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, which I thought was a bit of a curse, not having mentors that actually had been a huge blessing and in just sheer out of necessity, exploring a lot of concepts and a lot of data over those years, sort of stumbling across many different tools and ways of actually measuring all of these things, like the movement of money or different participant group behaviors, et cetera. So even liquidity and underlying liquidity in different markets. And then the sort of the only other context factor as well is that one of the many rabbit holes I ran down was a subset of systems thinking. Uh, and complex systems analysis in, in a little bit more of a formalized sort of problem solving focus manner. And, and in that realm, I was able to seek out one of the, the sort of foremost world leading experts in that space. And we became friends because I was applying a lot of his stuff to mm -hmm. 
a globalized system, which he'd never seen anyone done before. So it's sort right. of fascinating right. from his perspective, you know, this young guy applying all his stuff, you know, to, to such big picture topics and then watching things unfold in line with a lot of what his version of analysis would suggest, you know, like sure, you watch sure, the DFC yeah. unfold, but we'd already done the systems analysis in January, 2008, where I walked him through how his methodologies applied to that globalized system. And so he had that front row seat, number one of understanding a lot of the dynamics, but then watching it unfold as per his analysis applied to the world would suggest, or his thinking process sort of systems right. analysis methodology. And so you string all that together because most of what we do now as investors and analysts is triangulate phenomena. So even the movement of money and, and capital between regions of the world or nations or, or whatever, a lot of it isn't captured in conventional accounting and reporting or economic statistics. And you sort of have to take this triangulated approach to comparing financial system, banking system, balance sheets, and, and the whole works, financial market statistics, and, and triangulate it into getting that coherent picture of, of what is actually going on. Because like I said, there's no Bloomberg ticker for capital flows, for example. No, exactly right. And then even within any given market, you know, trying to strip out the behavioral information of different participant groups, both from exchange type data sets through to the broader setting of, of information and, and data you get on different participant groups and their behaviors and actions, like what they actually are doing with their money and what decisions they're actually making as opposed to the, the narrative flow. Well, you know, this is why I, I love your work so much. And when I first started looking at your charts, found them bewildering, you know, because there's they're complicated charts, there's a whole bunch of stuff represented. And, and of course you have to represent these on top of each other to get the full picture. But once I'd seen enough of them, it's you know like the fog lifts and suddenly they instantly make sense to you. And so you know, as we go through this, let's talk a little bit about those first principles now. Given, given all that, how you've distilled this down into the kind of core foundation of your investment strategy. And then we'll kind of look for maybe some real world applications of that with, with some of the dynamics you're seeing in the flows in the world today. Yeah, so we start pretty simple. So there's two main elements that begin this. Number one is this storehouse principle, which is just plagiarized directly from the Bible, from the Joseph story of, you know, the seven years of plenty and seven years of yeah. famine. And so that identifies there are times every five to 10 years, typically where you can buy higher quality assets or industries or whatever, depending on your investment mandate for cents on the dollar. And so we want to be in place two things. We want to have the purchasing power to be able to step in when other people lack liquidity. Uh, number two, we, we want to have a signaling methodology so we can actually identify that actually the timing is right. Right. And that's where the flows participant behavior, because when you see that larger, well-informed money sort of participant groups stepping in and buying very strongly in the context of a distressed situation. So take an industry, say their cash flows are struggling for whatever reason or earnings are just getting destroyed. They're writing stuff off. And so when you see the, the well-informed larger balance sheet participant group stepping into that situation of stress, like in an industry or in a, in a company, clearly they've got a level of conviction to be, and you think about the stakeholder relationships they have to manage as well. They've got a level of conviction there that 
is um, pretty noticeable and they're putting their money behind, you know, their view there. So when we see that, so that combination of that bigger patient money purchasing and a stressed industry condition, that's a pretty huge cue, you know, now yeah, there's a yeah. secondary context review. We just need to do there because you just need to assess system structure. Like what, what is the context this is happening in? You don't want a negative feedback loop that you're um, not aware of that could delay uh, the, the rebound or the counterbalancing. So you basically just want to make sure that the system is actually intact, that counterbalancing yeah, yeah. mechanisms in place and, and all of this sort of stuff. And that's not as hard as it, sounds um, it's just more common sense principles applied to that double check and so when you see industry insiders or the bigger money well-informed participants buying stressed fundamental conditions plus a double check that the system structure that that, that is operating implicitly there is still functional and that there's moving parts and so there's natural counterbalancing dynamics it's not locked into a negative feedback loop for example yep then that's typically one of the most attractive buying opportunities there is in any given industry. Now we've developed tools to be able to do this in any exchange traded market or any equity or equity sector there is. Even in the development of those tools, there's a bit of a long story in them as well, but that's kind of the context to a degree or, or some simple explanation. The other thing that we pay attention to is capacity cycles in any given business right. sector or segment or industry. And one way of looking at the capacity cycle of an industry is, is just simple capex type cycles, you know, the, the capital deployment, how much supply and capacity is, is there. Because typically, you know, career risk informed boards and executive teams tend to be very pro-cyclical and doing usually the wrong thing at the extremes. They're either completely getting out of their own business at the lows or investing just crazy commitments, taking all sorts of risk, you know, at, at the highs, um, so to speak. And so just sort of tracking that, you know, so, so that even there is an example of another participant group that has a different behavior pattern, different set of incentives and the, the conflicts that the incentives there in the career risk crowd kind of short circuit their capacity to operate as the well-informed yeah. detached patient money crowd do, because at the end of the day, if you have a board of directors or an executive leadership team of a company, and they're not following the popular narrative of that industry and investing till the cows come home in CapEx and everything, well, they get replaced and, and with someone who will. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. And so there's a variety of different reasons why these different participant groups and categories end up basically forming this archetypical profiling of personality and behavior, but you can use them as cues for that industry. So you don't even need to have huge subject domain sort of expertise in a particular industry. You just look at what the different participant groups are doing, yeah. their incentives, their proximity to information, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, just even those two groups we've talked about, the patient money, well-informed, large balance sheet sort of crowd, uh, and the career risk guys running certain companies. Right. Yeah. I try to not get myself into trouble with, but anyway. Yeah, that, that's all right. <laughs> um, you know, because one group you want to do the opposite of as a general exactly. rule of thumb at a cyclical level. The other group you actually want to follow and do the same. Yeah. But you start to get these different participant categories and you get this 
coalescence or a multitude of perspectives around that given industry where that triangulates a very high conviction degree of insight in that industry and because you're watching what different participant groups are actually doing with their money and you know their incentives and their historic behavior and their relationship to cyclical phenomena and then you've got a, a speculative leveraged money crowd for example that are really just price followers and, and takers especially in securities markets and they as well have you know you, you typically want to follow them when you're in trending environments, but when they get to extremes and really out over their skis and uh, in, in their positioning or their use of leverage or whatever, you know, that's when you want to start to look at possibly leaning the other way as well, you know? Yeah. Um, and what usually they- when you get these buy points in these asset classes or industries, the speculative crowd have been totally washed out. Yeah. You know? yep. And that's another indication as well. It's interesting because it's such a common sense based framework, but yeah, you know, I, I wonder what how you found things like when you when you're following liquidity flows and you're following incentives. Obviously, in the last handful of years, we've seen those distorted dramatically by central bank interference and by um, you know the incentives which have really moved away from business based incentives to stock-based compensation incentives. So we, you know, we, we feel like we're in a period where the liquidity flows are non-representative of the economic situation, which would ordinarily translate into the viability of a business. And the kind of management teams don't seem to care about the business. They want to get the stock price up. And you know, we, I, I could do the same thing as you and get myself in trouble and, and highlight a couple of obvious examples, but I won't. How have you managed to kind of take those inputs and not let them kind of corrupt your models? Well, the reason I went into these models and tried to figure out that level of insight and data set was exactly because what you're talking about. Okay. All right. Yep. Um, So in an environment where market mechanisms are being suppressed or even disengaged or suspended in various ways. And that's been the trajectory of government policy, both fiscal, regulatory, and monetary policy for the last several decades, is largely to suppress market mechanisms or even disengage them altogether, right? So you don't get these counterbalancing dynamics or the reallocation of capital away from poor users of capital and resources to better ones, you know, bad stewards, good stewards type concept. So we increasingly are having a greater overhang of underproductive or a multiplication of underproductive assets out in the economy. And we don't let that clean out in aggregate as a society, as a broader system, the productivity of that system keeps deteriorating, right? Also the, the every new dollar or credit or liquidity or purchasing power that is created generates or reflects deteriorating sort of less and less productive activity as well, which in a, in the financial economy is a velocity decline, roughly speaking, or the, or the falling productivity of dollar and credit and liquidity. And so when you disengage all of that and then skew the incentives towards basically financial engineering, as opposed to real world engineering yep. and production, and especially over time where you induce moral hazard, etc and and really turbocharge the skew towards financialized activity as opposed to real world activity flows and liquidity become even more important 
right? Because the old school logic around, well, if this happens, the economic system will counterbalance in this way, it doesn't counterbalance. That's part of the problem. And we accumulate all of these issues and it, it becomes a much more flows and uh, liquidity driven world, which is why, you know, and, and this is what I was getting back to, you know, when societies or systems have an excess of credit in them, basically, especially as that starts to, you know, the wheels start to come undone, it's follow the money because one yep. of the lessons of history is we will take ourselves to the brink as a society and look over into the abyss, but nine times out of 10, we'll actually pull back and adapt in some way, shape right. or form to kick the can or do this or whatever. Sometimes there's just sheer inertia. We go over like lemmings, but not always. Um, usually it's, it's more of that adaptive nature. So looking at how could this system adapt? What are we going to do to delay the bill or to shaft it onto someone else or some other sector? Or, you know, can we hold off enough until we get some sort of productivity miracle around technology to bail us out, et cetera, et cetera. And so because of that, it's hyper important to follow flows and actual what people and participant groups are doing with their money and what liquidity conditions really are, even on a localized market or securities basis. Because there's a lot of, when market mechanisms are being suppressed or disengaged, you don't get the signal that you used to, you know? So what the older guys that have grown up, you know, especially in the industry the last 50 years are used to is how the system inherently works. Well, we're in the twilight zone relative yeah. to their paradigm, right? And it is crazy. And like even foolishness is actually getting rewarded and has been for the last 20 years. If you lever up into pretty much anything, you're probably going to get bailed out and or, you know, shoot the lights out. Now that's not normally a, a pattern of operation that's been well rewarded in, in history. But if, if market mechanisms to the degree that market me mechanisms are intact, it tends to clean out people who operate in a foolish or over-aggressive manner. But if you suppress them and create, inject moral hazard as well, and, you know, don't necessarily match the authority and, and ability to take a position and you don't match it with actually the real world risks and consequences of originating that, that position or risk exposure, you know, you're going to have all sorts of problems multiplying yeah. the system. And so now we've got a hyper-financialized system. So triple down on, on flows and liquidity style analysis. It's not that the other analysis methodologies are, are not important, but this paradigm is much more counterintuitive than most realize. And you, you see that in the way money actually moves. It's like, oh, why is that happening right now? That doesn't make sense but that's a good flag to dig deeper into how the system is actually working because the old paradigms are just, they're not intact anymore. We need that new systems flows focused paradigm to be able to navigate this sort of world that we're in and, and will be in for the next 15 years at least. It's interesting you say that because you know, as I'm listening to this, and it's such a simple way of looking at it, but it's very profound. But then you get onto questions of how does that, affect your ability to spot turning points simply because the answer to any turning point is more liquidity. You know, we've seen that over the last 10 years, the response to any kind of wobble in the markets, any kind of stress on the system has been more liquidity. So what you have is a world where, as you say, foolishness is rewarded, buying the dip is rewarded, trusting that 
uh, some kind of deus ex machina is going to come out of the sky in the shape of central bankers and fix the system when it breaks. How do you kind of square that with trying to invest in a way that is, you know, resilient? Because in these markets, your resiliency is almost by definition the foolishness and the outside agencies corrupting traditional price signals. That's, that's almost your resiliency is we can trust them to come in, throw liquidity at this and save the system every time. Yeah, you're right. But markets are being disengaged and suspended at an aggregate sort of broadest possible level, right, as a general principle. Yeah. But markets discreetly are still functioning in many different areas. And so, you know, like equity markets are a good example where because of the sort of capital flow structure in the world, et cetera, that's kind of putting a mechanism in place, especially for US equities where multiples just keep expanding, expanding. There's plenty of other feedback loops in that story, but equity markets are a good example, especially S&P 500 seems to be almost like a central pillar of the Fed, you know, unspoken mandate. But there's a structure underneath that market that still prevails. There's still bulls, there's still bears, right? The bears might be on the sideline. They might be almost non-existent at the moment, but, um, you know, they have pain points. They have volatility tolerances they have and and we also get ahead of ourselves because markets by definition anticipate um, liquidity is still a large function of confidence you know the fed can control quantity to a point that can't control the quality of liquidity right. that is created or that circulates they can't control the overall confidence in fact if the fed has to act it's probably because there's a lack of confidence out there and the confidence dimensions, the behavioral dimensions are pretty profound and they, they sort of supersede a lot of this stuff. And so reducing some of the problem you're alluding to down into practical tools, besides spending a lot of time trying to understand how different participant groups moving their money and are positioned, I also spend a lot of time trying to work out where are those pain thresholds, where are the pain points mm-hmm. underneath any given market or around any given market where the bulls or the bears, the leverage bulls or the, the real money bulls and bears, the different participant groups, where do they get trapped? Where, where is that threshold of pain below or above which mean they are trapped and therefore they're forced to unwind? You know, it's a cascading market. So below a certain level, all of those bulls and the bullish flows and positions that are built up for, you know, whatever the preceding period is, could be years, below a certain level, they'll become trapped, right? And they'll be forced to lessen their exposures or unwind. And so you only have a seller's market. That's a cascading market lower, but it also works on the reverse. Yeah. Bears past a point, especially if they've been in control through a sideways range or a lower sort of progression, and they've built up either an under allocation to an asset class or an outright short position in an asset class or market or commodity, whatever it is, past a certain level, they're going to become trapped and forced to unwind their short exposure or their underexposure and be buyers. And so you have a buyer's market where the market cascades past a certain threshold. One of the shocking realizations or discoveries I've had over this last 20 years is that behavior is a lot more predictable and patterned than I ever would have imagined. One of the, the whole points, and in fact, some of the tools you're pointing to a synthetic representation of so you know cot reports commitment of trader reports on futures Mm -hmm. markets reported by the cftc um 
So COT reports on currencies and commodities are pretty helpful in understanding where commercials and different for traders sure, yeah, are positioned sure. and blah, blah, blah. Sentiment surveys on pick an asset class or whatever. When you study these things excessively and obsessively, like maybe <laughs> I've done too much of in maybe, the past. Maybe. It's a, one of your friends has done. Yeah, right. Yeah. You start to get this sense of deja vu where it's like these participant categories are behaving in the same manner. Yep. Over and over again. Over and over yep. again. And whether it's a corn market or an equity market, like whatever it is, or currency, the behavior is the same, right? And so there was always this theory, like even some of the guys I used to, 20 years ago when I started out studying, some of the old guys that would trade uh, commodity markets and currencies, for example, used to pay a bit of attention to, you know, commitment of trader reports and even different ways of studying open interest in futures and things. They used to speculate that it would be possible to synthetically reproduce the COP positioning reports under any given market, right? And I used to look at their discussions around that because I'd see the same thing. I'd have this deja vu where it's like this patterning in behavior, the way speculators and or commercials would behave relative to the unfolding of market conditions is just staggeringly repetitive and yeah. consistent. Yeah. So I'd try to actually synthetically recreate the, the positioning profiles that come from those different participant groups just from price and volume information, which was their, these old guys' theories, right, back then. And I'd fail, they'd fail, I'd fail every couple of years. I'd still have another crack just because I'm hard-headed at this. And I, I'd do more study, whether it's flows data or whatever, like the institutions put out or sent... And I'd still have this deja vu where it's like, man, we really are a bunch, place. bunch yeah. of monkeys. We're doing the yeah. same thing with the same... Yeah. But eventually I was trying to do something else, playing with data as I do, in amongst playing with that data, trying to do something else. I took the kids to the beach, as you do, and I'm watching them playing in the sand. And because I, I just have a lot of data and charts in my head, right? I know you do. Yeah. And so I'm cycling <laughs> through, you know, these charts. And I'm like, where have I seen that before? You know, what I was working on that morning. And I'm like, that's it that's the commercial positioning for oil, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And so when I got home after the beach, you know, I'm pulling up, I'm like, stuff me, that's it. You know, cause I'd also learned a lot about psychological frequencies and behavioral sort of principles, basically that, that I'd built into these models that I was creating back then. But I basically stumbled across a synthetic algorithm that replicates the participant group behaviors of COT reports, like COT, as reported by COT reporting, yep. right? And then once I figured out the commercials, which really I just stumbled on, but I didn't really figure it out, but it wasn't hard to tweak that, understanding the, the behavioral principles of how these groups work, to then have the speculative crowd, yep. right? And one of the things that sort of blew me away about that, number one, it's ridiculous that you can synthetically reproduce participant behavior just with an algorithm, just from price and volume data. You shouldn't be able to do that, right? I would have thought. It's kind of one of those things that's right on the line. You, you either shouldn't be able to, or you absolutely should because it's human behavior. It, yeah. It's one of those things, you know. It, it's ridiculous. And, and the funny thing is, is, you know, I'd bring up, because the cop positioning is really useful with currencies and commodities, right? It becomes problematic yeah. with yeah. bonds and equity indexes and stuff uh, because they're traded on more markets as well. It's not as concentrated to some degree. But 
you know, when you compare my synthetic model with say the commercials commitment of trader positioning as like actual reported, where it did like vary nine times out of 10, when you look with the benefit of hindsight. So should I have taken the signal cue from my synthetic representation of that participant behavior group, or should I have taken the actual reported positioning from the cot? With the benefit of what happened later in price in that market, nine times out of 10, it was the synthetic represent like right. representation of the positioning that, that prevailed. And right. then later on, I started to realize when I applied those same models to equity market stocks or sectors or industries, it's totally mirroring like insider buying aggregate information, like within the S&P 500 industry sectors, like the patient money, like the synthetic commercial cut perfectly mirrors the aggregated buys and sells of like CEOs and CFOs and all of this sort right, of thing. Right. And then the same on the speculative side, I was able to reproduce most speculative like sentiment surveys for any given market or, but the difference was now is I had an independent point of reference. I'm not dependent on some regulatory body, right? Cause positioning is only reported on a handful of narrow markets in the exactly. States, but I can yep. apply this to any market in the world now. Also, I've got historic background. So I, this stuff works even like we have information on Dow Jones stocks from the 1800s, the late 1800s. I dropped the same models in there and it's the same. It's, it works, you know, and it's ridiculous. Like it should not be that way. And then other studies around liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. Even anyway, there's, there's a big rabbit hole to go down here, but behavior ended up being more predictable or more patterned than I ever imagined. When I figured out that stuff, it wasn't too hard to then progress. Once I had those, some of them were counterintuitive sort of insights as to how that actually worked, but it wasn't hard to then break down bullish and bearish positioning underneath any given market. And also to identify where those thresholds are, where bulls or bears become trapped, right? Yeah. They're those points of control or the pain points in positioning. Yep. And so that then actually gives you a risk management framework. It, it both like helps you identify opportunities because if you know if this level gets exceeded, you're going to trap a lot of bears and we're going to have a cascading upwards market, vice versa on the downside as well. If you trap all the bulls, you also have an opportunity to see how long bulls have been in control, which gives you the potential energy for a future cascade. Right. Because right. if they're been in control for 10 years and there's a backlog of positioning and flow there, they breach their pain point and we cascade. That's a 10 year. It's very it's different a 10 year than bulls being yep. in control yep. for a year yep. and breaching their pain point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. And, and getting trapped. And so, still spins my head, quite frankly, um, that it works that way. Um, yeah. When I listen to it, and I look at your work, it makes such intuitive sense to me. I would never have thought of it in a million years, but when, you, when you're presented with the information that you present and you think about it as a fait accompli and then you try and understand why, of course, it makes sense. I mean, the human beings in the individual are complex and very difficult to predict, but in crowds, there's a reason for all this, right? We we do tend to act the same in crowds and that behavior, I guess it's not often you get the chance to apply that behavior to very specific topics. We kind of think of them in the abstract, you know, how do we all behave in the face of X situation or Y situation, not how do we all behave when faced with a decision to purchase a US 10-year treasury bond, right? It's just not, we don't get that specific. But, you know, with, with all that as background, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about 
the markets today, particularly around this idea of points of control, which I know I'm, I'm sure is going to fascinate a lot of people because you've had these great charts where you, you show just how close a lot of these points are right now in some of these very well, key the instruments. work in a way to actually try and test them, right? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly quite right. often in a healthy bull market, it, it'll retrace uh, in order to test that point of control to just shake them out. It kind of needs to be refreshed, the, the market, and that gives it the potential energy. And so the way it behaves at that point of control is just huge information value there. And that's also the point at which bears are most, you know, they're finally, they're back in the game. They've been getting smacked around and yeah. at their peak right. in uh, positioning and confidence is when uh, then, you know, the trend continues on that multi-year basis. But if all of a sudden it starts to break down through that point of control, then you're like, well, okay, time yeah. to hedge, time yeah. to rebalance, time to whatever, or exit, um, depending. Uh, so it just gives you an objective risk management and investment framework that, um, anyway, it's pretty useful. <laughs> I know in your recent uh, board meeting, you, you were talking about growth and inflation. So we've got a couple of abstract kind of concepts there. That's not, that's not a stock you can break it down to, it's not a ticker. But talk about how you see those two dynamics within the context of this framework. Yeah, so the other sort of first principle set that really helps us run portfolios and investments and, and navigate markets is that every major macro market that's important pretty much maps to three primary factors, which is growth, inflation, and capital flows. Right. And so growth is either increasing, decreasing, inflation is either increasing or decreasing, and capital flows either concentrating in or dispersing away from any given market or any given region or whatever. And so understanding that, that helps us to create resiliency in our diversified portfolios because we have exposures that will do well in any one of those combinations. So growth up or growth down, inflation or deflation or capital inflows or outflows or whatever. And because we have that starting point, that gives us sort of a neutral ground, resilient footing, you know, across those different things. So when we analyze the world, like that investment committee meeting presentation you saw, that's one of the things we'll start because it's all about triangulating insights. So what are the leading indicators yeah. on growth on this region of the world or the world globally combined in aggregate or leading indicators of inflation or where is money actually moving in the world from a capital flows perspective? You know, where is it concentrating into or out of, et cetera? That sets the tone, you know? So equities generally do well, you know, in growth up kind of environments, but one of the underappreciated dynamics, especially, well, it's sort of appreciated, but because people, you know, the idea of measuring and analyzing capital flows is more of an abstract concept for most, as opposed to a data-driven concept, the skew towards US asset outperformance of the last, especially last decade or so or more, but even still today, the resiliency in that outperformance of US assets versus the rest of the world is still very strong and very intact and very yeah. capital flow driven. And on a multi-gear basis, it's just unrelenting. You know, we have a pause in things like on the US dollar index, for example, let's just pretend that that was a useful capture of currency conditions. That multi-year bull market in the US dollar index is still intact. And each time, you know, we've had that real money bull point of control, basically in the high eighties or 
about 90-ish on the US dollar index for the last few years, right? And we come back and we test that, sort of refreshes it a little bit, but it hasn't broken. And that the, the capital flows that are concentrating into the US have just sort of caused that unrelenting outperformance of US assets. And so at the moment, we still don't see any signs of that reversing. In fact, it seems to be we're coming into a season over the next few quarters of that gathering pace again, you know, that multi-year trend reasserting itself towards a tighter or stronger dollar um, in the world. And, and so setting back, what's growth doing? What's inflation? Where, what's capital flows doing? Where are the major points of control in the major different asset classes and markets? And that sets a template to then be able to make investment decisions and asset allocation decisions, depending on your mandate. And, you know, also having an eye to flows and underlying liquidity. So one of the other sort of discoveries I made, especially on an individual market basis, is when you can strip out the speculative sort of motive participants and the patient money sort of investment motive type participants, the remainder of the activity is actually sort of passive or broader system type demand or lack thereof for those securities or for that market, whether it be a, a stock or, or a commodity or whatever. And that gives us what I really call emergent system flows, which is emergence as in a complex systems concept of emergence. Yeah. So what yeah. the broader world is actually placing demand on that asset class, but simplistically speaking to help people understand what I'm actually talking about. I call it underlying liquidity. People get that. And, and funnily enough, when you compare our underlying liquidity tool, say for the S&P 500, for example, where we have a lot of more objective data sets on like order book depth around S&P 500 stocks. And also you sort of have glimpses into dark pool activity for S&P yep. 500 stocks as well. And, and so when we compare our underlying liquidity tools to say order book depth and dark pool activity and, and different things, it captures it really well. You know, we've written this up. There's a lot of rabbit holes we can run down here, but there's just like participant behavior is really well patterned. Once we strip that more active direct participant activity and involvement out of the activity of that market, the residual is that underlying liquidity sort of right. dimension. Um, and that correlates amazingly well to the statistics we have on like order book depth and some of the dark pool activity sets, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Even branches off into a lot of the derivative market activity implied liquidity conditions for S&P 500 stocks as well. Because what we've been able to strip out is, is actual fundamental core behavior of people and the yep. broader system, right? And so that helps us to triangulate. And so when you see liquidity starting to fall away, it will often act in a leading manner to price. And when you see all of a sudden, like right now, for example, we're at a point where that patient money category are distributing or selling S&P 500 stocks quite excessively. Um, mm -hmm. And at the moment, liquidity is still unrelenting. Like it's in fact, one of the charts, two of the slides you would have seen is that US equity market liquidity is just off the charts to the upside. It's just hugely ultra liquid, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Whereas emerging markets is just the complete opposite picture. It's lethargic. The liquidity profile under those markets is just really poor. And, and then that's another way to triangulate 
capital flows. Where is the money most active? Where's, where's the liquidity and where is it not? And by triangulating participant positioning and flows, you can start to see beneath the surface of price, the market structure to see what's healthy and what's not, you know? And like right now, and it's been this way for a little while, like emerging markets are, are very unhealthy in terms of the liquidity and the position, the, the inherent structure underneath those markets especially in contrast to US larger cap equity markets is just night and day different. Yeah. Um, putting all of this together, you start to have more of an objective framework to make allocation decisions or investment decisions. And, you know, and you're not operating at the level of opinion or perception because you've been able to reduce a lot of these abstract concepts down into data, into data driven models where, you can see the history of it. You can see when it changes even. And so when it changes, I'm able to change. I don't have this pet theory that's stuck or pet perception or bias in yeah, my head yeah. of what I think is happening because I can see it in data, you know? And so trying to reduce a lot of these abstract concepts down into data-driven models to make it objective has been another huge sort of subset of what I've spent the last 20 years doing basically in, in different areas. So one of the uh, areas that you talked about in the presentation was China and this kind of setup you saw in China that, that we saw, I guess, back in 2013, 14, there's like a four-step process that you walk through. Talk a little bit about those flows, how they kind of sequence and how that plays out versus what you're seeing now. Because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So so in the same way that we've evolved models for, you know, to strip out participant behavior in markets, when you study the banking system and even pricing dynamics in capital markets, right? And, and the clearest example, you know, forgive me for the segue, but in order to answer that China question and, and what you're referring to there, I kind of, so, you know, inflation protected treasury securities, mm -hmm. right? They've only really been around since the late nineties. And so we, you know, even the concept of break-even inflation expectations, right, as implied from the difference between nominal and the, you know, the, the real yield securities that trade as a market, and even real yields themselves, like market-based, market-determined real yields, like the 10-year tips yield, for example. Yep. We only have that information back to the late 90s, roughly speaking. So I thought it'd be very interesting to understand how market price real yields and break-even inflation expectations would look, you know, if I could take it back to like the turn of the 1900s, like it would be fascinating to look at that history. Sure. Sure. And so I spent a lot of time going down sort of first principles, what information does different capital market pricing give us? Right. And so basically, Long story short, I was able to reverse engineer a pricing model for real yields, so market implied real yields, like the 10-year tips yield, and also 10-year break-even inflation expectations, as implied by you know, those markets, but only using equity market data and nominal treasury market data and corporate fixed income market data, because we have those data sets back to the turn of the 1900s, right? Using those first principles pricing relationships, I was able to strip out a model that basically replicates and actually ended up leading the 10-year tips yield for at least the, the data that we have or the experience we have since the late 90s and break-even in expectations as well. 
But all of a sudden now I have a model where I can strip out the, the pricing assumptions in those other capital markets as to what they are pricing for inflation and real yields and take it back in history. When I figured that out for the US, that gives me the pricing models for China or for right. any other region, right? So the break-even inflation expectations in China that is implied by the constellation of their sovereign equity and corporate fixed income markets gives us insight into the inherent pricing structure of inflation within their system. Has the added advantage of not being gained because it's not a headline economic statistic. And right, that right, right. leads Chinese um, inflation conditions by quite a number of quarters. Right. And so then in the banking system, trying to gauge the demand. So one thing, seeing the quantity of liquidity created in aggregate in a banking system, it's all another thing trying to determine the circulation rate or the productivity of that liquidity that's created, the velocity, the demand function. So you've got supply of liquidity, then the demand for liquidity. This gets into, especially if I'm talking with Austrian economists, this is a big can of worms, but yeah, yeah. The, the, the chart you're referring to or the slide you're referring to pulls together a lot of these things. So banking system liquidity in China, both their commercial and central banks put together, in addition to the break-even inflation expectations implied by Chinese capital markets, in addition to uh, one of our more useful capital flow models that adjusts for their intervention as well in terms of capital into or out of China. Right, right. Put those three things together and you kind of have a leading set of indicators on the risk of depreciation in their currency, for example, being the analysis target on that slide. And so back in that period of time, you know, I think we saw inflation expectations start to collapse, right? It was number one. Step two was, I think uh, velocity started to deteriorate or confidence in their banking system started to deteriorate was number two. Number three, I think was a shift more towards sort of, so the inflows had started to moderate and starting to actually turn into outflows out of China. And then number four, the natural consequence in that domino chain was a depreciating Chinese currency. So fast forward to today, We've got all of those three factors lining up again, where we're seeing uh, break-even inflation expectations as priced by capital markets in China starting to deteriorate. We're starting to see a deterioration in velocity in uh, confidence and demand in, in the Chinese banking system. And there's approximately, there's no shortage of reasons for that. I mean, they're kind of, there's some of the stressed conditions and, and the miscalculation that's being revealed in the Chinese banking and financial system right now is, you know, Pretty interesting to say the least. And then that shift now towards capital outflows in China. And now we triangulate capital flows with a variety of different analysis methodologies. That's just one of them that, that you were looking at, but that's shifting to outflows as well. And so the natural progression is, uh, you know, those forces are too big, especially with decelerating growth in China yeah. as well for the, the central bank to be able to hold back. They, they basically either have to bring in capital controls um, or their, their currency is going to really start to depreciate over the next few quarters is what that kind of implies. Um, and probably it'll be both. You know, they'll have a weakening bias in their currency and also they'll be instituting capital controls in the quarters to come, I'd imagine. But that has profound implications for the world as well. 
And China has kind of like for the last 15 years, there's been a sub cycle of growth and inflation in the world of every two to four years, we get this reflationary sort of sub cycle happening in the world. And China's kind of front run that at all the key junctures for the last 15 years. Yeah. And they're kind of doing that again in that their deceleration in growth is um, sort of front running the rest of the world. Uh, it's starting to show up in the rest of the world now, especially in leading indicators all decisively have rolled over. You know, they peaked earlier in the year um, or even earlier, depending on whether you're looking at unconventional leading indicators or the conventional ones. And then in addition to those factors where there's basically a marginal tightening and, and lack of confidence in the Chinese banking system, in like domestically, uh, and then a shift towards capital outflows from the capital inflows that they've had in the last couple of years, and you actually see the outflows a little bit more pronounced when you don't just look at it. When, when you look at it between China and other regions of the world, capital outflows have actually started a couple of months ago, uh, whereas they're sort of dragging the chain and trying to manage it when it comes to flows to the US. But I think that's more optics and the, the headline sort of management right. that they do. Uh, it's also the most, the largest and most important one. Um, but it's shifting into potentially net outflows, even despite intervention, potentially in the next few months. So, but that's sure. an underappreciated dynamic at the moment, but approximately yeah. you look at China and then there, you know, even the crackdown they've had on their tech sector and probably the other biggest untalked about dimension of what is going on in the world right now has to do with the rule of law, generally speaking, and the best illustration when we're talking about this is that if you were to enter into a contract in America, say three decades ago, especially, you know, you're pretty confident that that contract will be honored. And even the legislative environment yeah. around that will be the same, even 50 years on. Right. But in the U S we've had that time horizon of confidence, even in contracts getting shorter and shorter, you know, they deteriorate like, whereas in China, what sort of time horizon confidence do you have entering into a contract in China? It's probably measured in years. It's probably not measured in decades, for example. No, for, for sure. And look, and it's measured differently if you're onshore or offshore, right? I mean, that's right. for sure. And, and in, in even their actions in the last few months, you know, you've had to de-rate your confidence in the security of contracts and even capital deployed in their system by a pretty material amount, you know, watching what they've done to even some of their largest tech companies. And so when you've got that confidence time horizon, even in their, the stability and predictability and objectivity of their rule of law, you can sort of see all these proximate causes for potential, you know, bigger issues of capital outflows, particularly in that region than, than probably people are, are thinking at the moment. The other aspect too is that what happens if we do start to see capital controls pop up more and more in the world, right? What happens when we've spent the last two decades, especially with all the biggest funds and all the biggest, you know, piling into uh, index level strategies, passive strategies, ETFs that track indexes, what happens in a world where capital controls are actually potentially proliferating? And under any given index strategy, right, or index-based ETF, all of a sudden you've got stranded pools of capital, mm -hmm. right? And you, you've got liquidity mismatches starting to pop up because, hey, capital just doesn't move like it used to move anymore. Does that 
strike at the very heart of the passive investment indexing phenomenon? Like, I think it could, you know, in a world where capital controls start to proliferate, which is probably a reasonable assumption for the next five, 10 years, given the way the world is unfolding. That strikes at the very heart of the feedback loops that were positive for this passive investment strategy style approach to completely unwind and reverse. And that's just from a capital control perspective. When you look at, you know, the very fact that central banks and fiscal and regulate like policy generally has been towards the suppression of market mechanisms or even just flat out disengaging market mechanisms, the pool of investable assets in the world is shrinking, right? Because when you don't have markets functioning properly to allocate resource, reallocate resource and keep the broader system productive, you're going to have a buildup of less productive assets, right? That are being sustained, but shouldn't be sustained. Right. And you're seeing that, and we're seeing entire categories of markets like fixed income markets in the world being sidelined because the only direct or indirect bid is increasingly government or central bank driven mm-hmm. huge pools of assets there that are becoming unavailable to investors around the world or uninvestable basically. And even within you point to any given index equity index, whether it's a sector or an industry or a regional sort of equity market index and an increasing proportion of those holdings are basically zombie companies and it's getting worse every single year. And so the issue of underproductive or unproductive assets on top of the capital control issue, then that potentially is a tectonic shift under this, you know, multi-year, multi-decade trend we've seen towards passive investment flows and Mm -hmm. strategies. And it's not a day or a week that goes by that you're not seeing some big, massive pension or endowment fund or whatever shifting more and more into these passive index level. Yeah, absolutely. But then, and, and it kind of makes sense because like the old school paradigms of engaging and investing in the world were largely valuation driven, whereas that's largely disengaged now. So what do you do? Well, if, especially if you haven't stumbled on a bunch of ways of measuring flows and positioning and, you know, how money is actually moving, then maybe you do just go passive. Like it's cheap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's the cheapest thing that could end up being the most expensive thing they ever do. Um, but we're basically they've missed the point that the next 10 years is not going to be like the last 20 years. Like a lot of investment portfolios and investment committees are perfectly designed for the last 40 years of experience. We've just exactly had. right. Yep. But yep. completely completely blind to the next 10 to 20 years, especially if we have capital controls popping up more and more, we have market mechanisms being disengaged. We don't have natural mean reverting functions, even in broader system dynamics, very much more flows driven because we're going to have more disorientated capital flowing around the world. And a lot of funny things will probably happen in markets that are very counterintuitive and you'll only make sense through a functional behavioral lens of going, why is money going from here to there? That doesn't make sense normally. Why is that happening? Ah, oh, and yeah. then you can dig into things to understand functionally how the system actually is behaving. 
Um, so you don't think about what people should be doing with their money because that's getting harder and harder because we don't have those natural mechanisms in place, market mechanisms especially, to give a signal to what they should be doing. Rather, you're going to go, well, what are they doing and why? Why is money moving in that direction? And is that sustainable? Is there a feedback loop under there that we're not aware of? Or vice versa, is this movement of money, is it sustainable? Even though it's very counterintuitive and it might be very sustainable or reverse like it. But this is the point. Like it's not the world we used to live in from a investment paradigm perspective. And the only way to safely navigate it, I think, is to have a little bit more of a flows and positioning focused paradigm. Like one of the effects of central bank policy, for example, in, in taking yields and rates to zero or even negative, et cetera, and then pumping out, liquefying the financial sector in a variety of different ways, uh, is that they're basically even turning stocks into commodities. Commodities have a cost to carry to them, right? And a lot of the stock market, especially zombified companies, have a cost to carry to them and valuations mm-hmm. that just don't even make sense. Even the ones that are still yielding something are so compressed, they may as well be commodities, you know, or looked at through the lens of a currency or something because there's no, you know, limited yield on them. And that trend is only going to increase because when you take the cost of capital to zero, right, eventually, because of the underproductive structures you maintain in that system, eventually the return on capital will start slowly approach zero as well in aggregate. And so, you know, we're turning the whole world and asset classes, we're either taking asset classes offline and making them uninvestable, or we're almost commoditizing everything, you know, because everything's just liquefied and bid up to the moon. And so in that sort of environment, what's fundamental analysis? I don't know. But if you analyze a stock market or an individual stock as if it were a currency where flows and positioning and liquidity is more important, you start to have a framework where you can manage risk and and actually even identify opportunity. But if you're trying to analyze a stock or a a share market through the lens of a fundamental framework, where's that going to get you? How's that going to work? Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a great point. And it's a great way to think about all this. You don't throw the baby out of the bathwater, right? Like I'm not just, you put this all together. So having a fundamental view of a stock is still important and where that industry is at from a capacity perspective, especially and, and different things. So it's still useful, but you have to have that beneath the surface look of what flows and positioning are doing and where are those pain thresholds in terms of bulls and bears around that particular stock or that particular industry sector or the share market. So it's like you analyze a stock as if it were a company like old school you would used to do where fundamentals mattered and valuation kind of remember those days. Yeah. And um, you know, and getting a sense, all of that sort of stuff. So you, and you still analyze a stock as if it were a company, like a real business, the fundamental side of things, but you also have to analyze the stock as if it were a currency and look at the flows, positioning and pain points in that security market, that, that market for that security. Yeah. As if, you know, like shares of Apple was like the Japanese yen, you, you know, like how do you analyze the yen with a flows positioning liquidity based framework? How do you analyze shares of Apple? Well, increasingly, you've got to be aware of the Apple stock as if it were a currency through a, a flows and liquidity style lens and positioning. 
And that's sort of the world we're in. And that it seems to make sense to me and it seems to be working. It, it took me many years to even start to trust half of this stuff I stumbled upon. Yeah, of course. Many years actually. But um, yeah, like I, I don't know how else you navigate this market where market, you know, this world where market mechanisms are being suspended and even rule of law is being eroded. And so it becomes much more, you know, I had to use the word tactical, but it, it becomes a little bit, you, you got to be a little bit more tactically aware, which means flows and positioning aware. Um, yeah. And you want to know where those pain points are in markets because you don't want to get trapped in a, a downward cascading market. Um, on the flip side, you want to know where could we be stepping into an upward cascading market? <laughs> where are those levels? Right, where right, do I right. have to pay attention? Uh, where are those? Yeah, I mean, where does that positioning it, come it, unstuck? It, you know, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you because the, you, the way you think about this stuff is is so fascinating and it's very very different, right? It's not it's not a framework that anybody's really familiar with now. And when you talk about how long it takes you to trust that stuff. Yeah, that's perhaps the hardest part of this is 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 getting that trust. You know, and for you to do it is hard enough, but you understand the rigor of the work behind it. It's such a counterintuitive framework for people that haven't done the work. It's even more difficult for them to think of these markets in these terms, to think of stocks as currencies. But to me, it makes so much sense because I've you know I've thought I've spent a lot of time thinking about how these markets have changed. And it's, it's very easy to say, oh, we're in a new paradigm, right? Which is the same as saying this time it's different. And we all know it isn't different ever, which, which your behavioral work has, has kind of borne out. But you still have to, at periods of time, think and find new ways to look at the same information within the modern context to try and make sense of it all. And, and it really seems like the way you're doing it is, is certainly the best way I've heard of to try and understand this new paradigm that we're in. Yeah, well, it's like our portfolio mandates. Like we run conservative, resilient ones, and by design, they're actually designed to be somewhat boring but consistent, etc. I often say to people, "Well, look, we're definitely not the perfect solution. Well, I like to think we're on that list of least bad, you know, alternatives that you <laughs> right." And and it's like all of this research and our models and and things and the frameworks, you know. No individual one is perfect, but they're kind of in that least bad category. And when you put them all together, it becomes really compelling, especially when you start to glimpse reality through a multitude of perspectives and see the same picture emerge. Um, yeah. It's really quite fascinating. Um, so many rabbit holes. I, I just, I, I yeah, I, I, I know. Look, we, 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 this conversation, you and I could spend all day talking about this, but I don't, I don't want to take all your weekend up. But look, it, it is a fascinating framework. But l let me ask you one final question because I know you have a, you have exposure to precious metals, and your that I think is based on kind of medium to long term views on them. But you also talk about in the short term there being a drawdown risk, your heightened drawdown risk because of the various cycles and i'm using precious metals as an example but how do you go about hedging those short-term drawdown risks within a medium to longer term framework where you're constructive about these things uh well that normally comes for us clarity of our mandate kind of then naturally explains okay what we're going to do there so within the portfolios we run we really have a um, so besides being resilient and producing we have a a positive return expectancy over any 24 month rolling period in our portfolio mm -hmm. minutes, right? And that gives us resiliency and a bit of a peace of mind factor. And we do that 
with a heap of common sense about how we allocate, which we kind of started to touch upon earlier in our chat. But we're also trying to produce and compound capital in a fairly consistent manner um, of inflation plus, say, 3 to 5% consistently per annum over multiple years uh, in those same mandates. And so when it comes to looking at gold for those mandates, we have a bit of a, a two-year rolling time horizon that, that comes to the fore. So what is signal and what is noise tends to be a, a little bit more aligned to that frequency of operation. And right. so right now there's, you know, we balance some drawdown risk in precious metals with the other assets we hold in the portfolio, basically, because if we have drawdown risk in precious metals, that probably means a tightening US dollar environment and probably yep. real yields having a bit of a, uh, a bias higher, for example, for whatever reason, and probably on balance deflation or disinflationary deflationary sort of uh, surprise uh, somewhere in the next year or two. And that would then naturally mean that being a little bit skewed, a little bit skewed to US dollar assets and on an unhedged basis will help to mitigate that. And so we also look at the way we allocate our portfolio through the lens of uh, basically confidence assets and collateral assets. Now, gold itself is a collateral asset, mm -hmm. but only in a uh, more of an inflationary regime, like structural regime, is gold a collateral kind of hedge to things. So when economic conditions deteriorate or there's a shock to confidence in the world and a scramble for collateral, um, it's still the way the system is set up in our view, it's still likely stress is going to be deflationary in nature or express itself through a deflationary, which probably means our collateral assets, we still want to be a little bit skewed more towards longer duration treasuries as opposed to gold. However, in the years to come, that will flip, right? And right. stress in the world will have more of a, an inflationary expression or a currency devaluation expression, even in the US, in which case a collateral scramble will be the things like precious metals, right? Um, and so we, our, our collateral holdings in our portfolios will shift a little bit more in favor of that. Okay. You know, and any currency, any asset you can look at through the lens of, is this a confidence asset or a collateral asset in nature? Now, real estate, at different periods of history were collateral in nature. Yeah, both, right? yeah. But it's because of the amount of leverage under real estate today, it's more of a confidence financial yeah. asset. And so it's not a collateral asset at the moment, you know, uh, in the current regime. And so now we don't go out on a limb and because these are diversified sort of balanced portfolios with resilient sort of low compounding mandates that, that we're after here with these particular mandates. but. So the way we would manage drawdown risk in, say, gold or precious metals uh, is totally dependent on the mandate. You know, now, obviously, we can apply our models uh, like flows, positioning, pain points uh, to be expressed, say, even hedging with derivatives, for example, or you might just lighten up your long exposure. You know, um, there's a variety of different possibilities, but they're determined by mandate and time horizons and also the, the instruments you can use. Uh, in our mandates, we can't use derivatives or leverage or shorting. So we're just long only, but we balance um, with right. the layering of other exposures in the portfolio relative to some of the common sense we talked about earlier in this chat. 
Fantastic. Daniel, look, it's been it's been a fascinating conversation. Every time I talk to you, it kind of leaves me with just so many things to think about. So I, I'm going to have to try and go to bed now here in, in the States and go to sleep while you're just starting your weekend, no doubt taking the kids to the beach and coming up with some more stuff to confound me with next time we talk. But look, it has been a fascinating conversation. And I know the people listening to this that, that weren't aware of you before will be, once they can get their brains back in their heads, will we'll want to find out more. So just tell people how they can find out more about prerequisite capital management and where they can follow you and all that good stuff. Um, easiest would be just to jump on our website, uh, prerequisite.com.au. Pretty much find plenty of stuff there. That's for sure. And, and you're on Twitter it, to periodically. Yeah, I, it's sort of a love-hate relationship with Twitter. Um, yeah, technically I'm on Twitter, but in practical reality, that the seasons come and go with that. Uh, well, yeah, what's I your mean, handle, just so people can just for people follow you? Daniel J. Want. At Daniel J. Want. Yeah. That's it. All right, listen, Daniel, mate, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out your weekend to do this. I really do appreciate it, and I know the listeners will too. Um, and hopefully, you know, when, when borders open and I can get down to see my daughter in Australia, uh, I'll swing up there to Bris Vegas and we'll, we'll, have a, we'll have a beer and spend some time in person. Sounds great. It'll be good. All right, mate, take care of yourself. Thanks a lot. You too. Well, I did warn you. Um, Daniel is such a unique thinker. And the work he's done into being able to quantify capital flows, I believe, is truly groundbreaking, as I think you've just heard. I suspect in this new paradigm, many people will come to value Daniel's flow and incentive-based framework incredibly highly. So I was delighted to have the chance today to introduce it, and for some of you, Daniel himself, to you. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did.